We can't be sure, of course, but leaving aside criminals, hucksters, and people who were profoundly misguided, it's entirely possible that Steve Ballmer was the worst major company CEO of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Ballmer! Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about what it means to be the CEO and why Balmer might not be the worst one of all time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. The Project for Awesome is a 48-hour live stream fundraiser brought to you by the Foundation of Decrease World Suck, where the audience submits homemade videos that promote their favorite nonprofit causes. Hey, that sounds familiar. During the two-day event, rare and very nerdy perks are available for donations, and the audience votes on which causes will share the funds raised during the event. More than $2.3 million were given out last time. If you have a cause you care about or just want to see what it's like to be a part of another one of the most best online communities out there, check out projectforawesome.com for all the details. So if we just look at the numbers, let's compare Apple to Microsoft during similar periods of time when Jobs was in charge of one and Balmer was in charge of the other. Under Steve Balmer's reign, I'm hesitant to say leadership, Microsoft stock went up 22%. During that same period of time, the stock of Apple Computer went up 4,800%. It increased in value 50x. During the period of time that Balmer was in charge, Microsoft completely blew smartphones and most of the internet. They weren't able to dislodge Google, which should never have existed if Microsoft had been on the ball, nor did they build a presence really in things like social networking. After Balmer left, the two companies had different CEOs, And when we compare leadership under the two of them, they're up almost exactly the same amount each. Clearly, the CEO makes a difference in terms of the value of the company, in terms of the choices that it makes. But these are not the CEOs that I'm here to talk about. I'm here to talk about you. Many of the people who listen to this podcast are the head of their own enterprise. Either they are freelancers working on their own, they are entrepreneurs building something bigger than themselves, they're bootstrappers, or perhaps they have a job, but they are still the CEO of themselves. Each of us makes decisions every single day about how to spend our time and how to assert and develop our assets. Where should we deploy them? And time which is an asset, and the rest of our assets, our skills, our reputation, the things that we own, these choices that we make with the assets that are available to us, this is the work of the CEO. It's important to begin with this. We all learn growing up what it is to have a job. The milkman, the postman, the person who's walking a beat as a cop. These folks have 
jobs. Someone tells them what to do. They perform tasks. And we teach all of this in the kids' books that we read to our kids when they're two or three or four or five, partly to prepare them for school. Because when they get to school, we are giving them a job. The job lasts 12 or 16 years, depending on how you're growing up. And your job is, ready for this? Homework. What an interesting phrase, homework. That your job is to sit still in class. That your job is to do well on the test, to regurgitate what the teacher just told you. That school is a multi-decade indoctrination in being a cog in the industrial system. You do jobs. And it's entirely possible that you live in a household where one or more people have a job where they don't feel like the CEO. Because if the person is a clerk at the record store, well, it's the boss who told them when their shift started and when it ended. It's the boss who gave them the list of tasks they have to complete each day. They're not the boss of the record store. Their job is to go to the record store and do what they're told, to react or to reply or to respond to the incoming, to check off all the things they're supposed to do. So when I say that people with a job are the CEO of their career, what I mean is this. That person decided to go to work in a record store instead of applying for a job as a chambermaid at the local hotel, instead of deciding to become an Uber driver. Instead, you get the idea. The decision about where to invest your time and your reputation is CEO work. And too often, because we've been indoctrinated by school, doesn't feel like real work if we're not doing what someone told us to do. All of us also get time that we are not spending at work. We've chosen to spend some of that time listening to a podcast like this one, maybe taking a workshop, maybe reading a book, maybe getting good at something. This is a skill that we have that can't be taken away from us. Some people spend a fair amount of their spare time developing and acquiring skills that become part of their assets, and some people watch Netflix. And either one of them could be a way to a happy life, but as the CEO of your career, one of them probably pays bigger dividends. But I want to shift gears now to the typical small business person, freelancer or entrepreneur, because these people are a special case. These people are people who might be terrible CEOs and yet really and truly busy, busy all the time, busy doing the tasks they have assigned to themselves. So busy doing the tasks that in fact, nobody is the CEO. So let's pick a lowest common denominator freelancer who's doing, I don't know, Photoshop retouching using Upwork or Elance or whatever, Fiverr, to get gigs. Well, pretty clearly, you list yourself, you get a gig, you do the gig. That's not CEO work. That's all task work. One day, you might decide to specialize in something. And as a specialist, getting really good at that thing, you charge double what you used to charge. That, that one hour of CEO work that you did to make that decision, doubled your income this year. 
The question then is, how much time are you spending on the CEO work? Another example, you're a real estate broker. There's more than a million real estate brokers in the United States. That's one out of 300 people. If you're a real estate broker, how are you spending your day? Well, if you're spending your day typing things, uploading things, taking pictures of things, retouching those pictures of things, answering the phone, getting back to people, you are doing a series of tasks that most real estate brokers do. The question is, if you can go to the aforementioned Fiverr or Upwork or find some place where you can get a virtual assistant, someone who isn't particularly good at being the CEO of their career, who for 5 or 10 or $20 an hour can do many of those tasks for you, and you hire that person to do those tasks so you can do things that only you do, is it possible you will sell one more house this year, two more houses this year? And how much exactly do you get for selling a house? Well, around here, a broker might make twenty dollars or $30,000. If you sell three more houses because you have hired somebody to work for you for 40 hours a week at close to minimum wage, a lot of money in whatever country they're in, doing digital tasks for you, it pays for itself many times over. Not only are you making more money, but if you believe that your work as a real estate broker is helping people, you're helping more people because you are showing up to do the tasks that only you can do by outsourcing the things that other people can do. Now, we take the ones that we already outsource for granted. You don't build your own telephone. You buy one. You don't use your own email server. You pay $19 a month to use one. These are obvious, right? You don't build your own car. You don't even fix your own car. They're obvious. They're the ones everybody does. But if they're the ones everybody does, then you haven't really done much in the way of CEO work, have you? So now we can take it a level further. Because in addition to hiring somebody to help you do what you were doing, you could also decide, back to that freelancer, to specialize. To specialize in only selling homes in one building. Or to specialize on a zip code that has more churn than your zip code. Or where the houses cost more. Or where you have more of an in to get the listings. These are CEO choices. And just as Steve Ballmer said one of the most idiotic things ever when he talked about the iPhone. Steve, let me ask you about uh, the iPhone and the Zune, if, if I may. The Zune uh, was getting some traction, then Steve Jobs goes to Macworld and he, he pulls out this iPhone. What was your first reaction when you saw that? $500 fully subsidized with a plan? I said, that is the most expensive phone in the world, and it doesn't appeal to business customers because it doesn't have a keyboard, which makes it not a very good email machine. Explaining that it was never going to work, you, the CEO of you, maybe aren't holding press conferences to announce what's going to work and what's not, but you're still making decisions along those lines. There's a book called The E-Myth Revisited, and I don't agree with everything in the book, but what the author argues is that one of the jobs of the CEO is to make every job in the organization a job so straightforward that it can be done by the cheapest available person, that you should be writing a spec for these jobs, that if you are saying, 
I would love to scale what I'm doing, but I need to hire a miracle worker to be me on the spot. You will not hire a miracle worker to be you because your on-the-ground knowledge, your ability to make a certain kind of decision, not replicatable. The job here is to take any job that can be specified, to turn it into a spec, to say this is what good output looks like, to figure out a job that is being done by other people for other folks and say, if you do this job for me to this spec, I can get back to doing jobs I can't spec. That is at the core of the work a CEO needs to do when she's doing her best work. So if you want to build Starbucks from two or four or five outlets to hundreds and hundreds or thousands of outlets, one of the things you do is you say, somebody's going to be standing at the cash register. That person's not going to be that different than the person who's standing at the cash register of any number of fast food places that came before us. I will not expect that person to make different judgments, to have different insights than they would need in those other places. I need them to be friendly. I need them to be welcoming. I need them to be accurate. I need them to show up for their shift on time, and I need them to read the manual. It's only by doing that that you can end up with 100,000 people or however many work at Starbucks. Now, I'm not here to sell you on building a chain that has 100,000 employees. What I'm asking you is, what part of your work, your day, whether it's your job, your freelance gig, or your entrepreneurial venture, which part of it is really valuable to the world? And is that the part that gives you joy and energy that you want to focus on? And if the answer is yes, then why are you spending most of your day doing tasks that could be done by other people? And the second half of it is, strategically, are you building assets? Are you investing in a place that is growing, that is vibrant, that is paying off what you are putting into it? Or have you decided to stick with what got you here in the first place? Because you've gotten somewhere pretty far. But the thing that got you this far, more of it is not going to get you to the next place. Now, it may be you don't want to go to the next place. Growing up, there was an allergist in town. And Bobby used to do, I don't know, 20 allergy shots, 30 allergy shots every hour. He had seven different examination rooms. He had nine nurses. He lined them up and he went right down the aisle. Shot, 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 shot. He made a bunch of money doing that. But that doesn't mean he was enjoying being a doctor. He had chosen to trade being on the assembly line for making a lot of money. If that's not going to give you joy as a doctor, don't do that. Figure out how you can be in family practice in Idaho where you don't have as many patients, where you don't make as much money, but where you get to do what you set out to do, which is to sit quietly and to take your time and to make families healthier. That's a strategic choice. We have to figure out how to set down our addiction to tasks, to doing what came before, to doing what everybody else does, to simply having a job with no boss, and to realize that we might be the world's worst boss. We might be, given how much we are giving up, the opportunities we are giving up, the choices we are making, we might be sacrificing the effort of somebody we care a lot about, ourselves. And that sacrifice of effort 
That mistake is keeping us from helping the people that we want to help. So it's easy to look at Steve Ballmer from the side, from afar, and realize that beyond his clownish demeanor, he just kept making mistake after mistake after mistake because he didn't really understand what his job was. That's easy. What's hard is to look in the mirror and realize how many degrees of freedom are available to us. That what we could do is specify the parts of our job that others could do. What we could do is to take some time and be strategic to acknowledge that what got us here might not be what gets us to where we want to go next. That you could be a better CEO. I hope that helps. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a bonus. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. And alas, this week... I didn't hear from you. So if you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope that you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Because if you ask questions, then I can answer them. Instead of a Q&A this week, here is a talk I gave a little over five years ago at Acumen, an organization that I work with in New York. Enjoy. A couple weeks ago, it was a Saturday, and unusually for me, I was off duty, and I was in Chicago, and it was a beautiful day. So I went to Wrigley Field, because I'd never been to Wrigley Field before. Thank you. And on my way back from Wrigley Field, I lasted an inning and a half, but it was fun. My cell phone died, and I needed directions. And I went up to this person, and I asked them for directions, and they gave them to me. And when they were done, they still had the directions. It's interesting to think about that. Because I juxtaposed that with a story about Leona Helmsley. Leona Helmsley uh, was a multi-billionaire. She had more than $5 billion when she died. And she was sitting with her lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, discussing her conviction for tax evasion. And while they were sitting there, the servant, I'll use that word in quotes, brought her the cup of tea that she had asked for. And on the saucer holding the cup was a drop of tea. So, of course, 
She took the cup and she took the saucer and she smashed it to the ground. And she demanded that the person who had bought it for her get on his hands and knees, clean up the mess, and beg not to be fired. When Leona Helmsley died, she left $12 million to her dog, Trouble, and nothing to two of her grandchildren. They called her the Queen of Mean, and the reason they did is because she got pleasure out of stripping people of their dignity. And I think for all of us, when we hear this story, this gratuitous, horrible story of how someone would go out of their way to do that to someone, it feels wrong to all of us. So I got interested in this idea of dignity, and I started doing some research. Dignity sounds like dignitary and dignified, but it turns out we had dignitaries long before we had the concept of dignity. That in fact, in the New Testament, the word dignity doesn't appear once. That we had dignitaries because we had kings. Kings, which according to David Graeber and Marshall Salins, great anthropologists, have a long history of being the other from somewhere else. The people who don't have to follow our rules. The people who can break all sorts of social contracts and do what they want. And so, of course, when the dignitary wants to do something, they get to do it. The idea of dignity, that every human somehow deserves something, was sort of unknown in Eastern cultures and Western ones. And it wasn't till Kant started really writing about it, right at the time we were building the modern economy, that we started to accept and embrace the fact that people deserve dignity, not because they earn it, but because they have potential, because they're human. And I think, my theory is, there are two reasons this caught on. One, because it wasn't just one king anymore. There were more rich people than ever before, sprouting up all around. And so if lots of people could break the social contract, if lots of people could start mistreating others, where were we going to draw the line in the sand? But the other thing that happened was we started having customers. And if you want to be able to sell to somebody, you need to be able to see them as a human like you're a human. And if you want to be sold to, suddenly you start to realize that dignity runs deep in who we are and what we want to do. So if we give someone directions or if we give someone a, a pass when we open the door for them or turn on a light, what do we get in return? Do we do it because we're going to get a prize, because we're going to get a thank you, because we're going to get gratitude? Well, no, because that means that dignity is deserved. It's not deserved. You just get dignity as part of being a human. It's part of the contract that allows the culture to ask you to show up and meet your potential. So it's a matter of deserve it versus earn it. So if we're sitting around the campfire and someone is cold, and they come because we invite them to sit next to us, there isn't less heat coming from the fire. In fact, there's more. And so each of us benefits when these connections are made. So I met Jacqueline 18 years ago, and it changed my life. And there were some really cool people around the table. What do you do? Oh, I'm a judge. Really? Yeah, well, you're on the Supreme Court. And what do you do? Well, I'm starting this software company. Oh, you mean Google? Yeah, okay. And, and what do you do? What do you make? Well, what Jacqueline makes, what Acumen makes, 
is a difference. And the difference they make is moving us toward empathy. I lost my mic. Moving us toward dignity. Allowing people a seat at the campfire. Because in fact, it costs vanishingly little to be able to start this cycle. That when we are able to go to someone and say, you could be our customer, what we are actually saying to them is, now you have the right to say no. We are not doing this to you. We are offering to do something with you. And if you don't want it, you have the power to say no. And in order for us to do that, and Abner stole some of my best work here, we need empathy. The empathy to say, I don't know what you know, and I don't believe what you believe, and I don't want what you want, but that's okay. Because if I have any chance at all of serving you, engaging with you, turning a light on for you, I have to give you the power to be that person who believes what they believe. And if I can help you go on that journey, then that is something I would like to do. So the cost to each of us who supports Acumen to get D-Lite up and running to the point where D-Lite can say to someone, would you like to buy this solar lantern? Because we are here to work for you, the customer, is vanishingly small. It scales, it ratchets. We don't have a coffee problem anymore in the United States. The shortage is over. Because Howard Schultz figured out how to make a nickel or a dime or a dollar every time we bought something so he could open another one, another one, another one. And the coffee problem goes away. And that's one way, not the only way, but one way to solve the problem of how do we engage in communities in order to help them change. This is not a charade. This is not something that we are doing because it's fun. We're doing it because we can. And so when I was in Kenya, I spent some time with Juhudi Kalima, which has the best name of any acumen partner that I can think of. And Juhudi Kalima says to somebody, we'll loan you enough money to buy a cow. And the milk from that cow will make you enough money to pay off the loan plus extra. But the cool thing about it is that the person who comes to visit you lives in your village. And I spent the day, and they called him the chairman. And he's a 65-year-old guy. And you could see this was the pinnacle of the life that he had lived, to be able to go from one home to another as the chairman, as the person who was going to enable this. And then the group met once a week in an off-duty church to go through the money. And I sat there watching them count every single bill, one at a time. And every person was is of and for what that community was about. And what was getting made there wasn't milk or cows, it was dignity. The dignity to be able to say to your kids, I could send you to private school now. The dignity of being able to say, I own this. And I can take the money I made from this cow to buy another cow or another one. I met Lucy, who owns four cows and a tree farm and now a taxi. And she's a millionaire under her bed in a cigar box. She showed me the million Kenyan shillings that she had earned. She had earned that no one had actually given to her. Or when David shows up in Ethiopia and says to farmers, you know way more about farming than I know. But here's a better chicken. Want to buy it? Almost no one says yes. But one farmer is crazy enough to say sure. 
And so he or she buys a chicken. And that chicken doesn't lay an egg every week. It lays an egg every day. And suddenly you've got enough money to buy another chicken. And then another chicken. And yesterday, Ethio Chicken sold a million chickens. And tomorrow, they're going to sell a million more chickens. One farmer at a time, looking people in the eye and saying, Saobana, I see you. Not, I see you from a demographic point of view of you're one more customer I can sell to. I see you. I see your parents and your grandparents. I see your dreams and your desires and your fears and where you hope to go. And they aren't my dreams and desires and fears. They're yours. But I have a light switch, and if I can turn it on, I will be happy to turn it on for you. We have a fire. There's a seat here next to the fire. And if you want to come sit with us, it's warm. You can join us or not. And so what's happening here are a series of ratchets. One ratchet is the ratchet that once we get a little electricity to a village, people make enough money that they want a little bit more electricity. And then a little bit more electricity, and the next thing you know, productivity kicks in. It's the ratchet of expecting that you deserve clean water and lobbying your elected officials to stop taking graft and start bringing you clean water instead, because if you don't, you'll just go figure out how to get it from Water Health International. But there are other ratchets. There's the ratchet of example, because now a whole generation of philanthropists are seeing that there's a different way to make change happen, and they realize they can do it even more. Or the ratchet of how foundations and other people in the industry start to look at asset utilization and what people are doing to make a difference happen. So the last thing I'll say is this. My friend Shaleen shared this with me. A lot of people ask, what do I need to do to succeed? But everyone in this room, many of who, like me, won the birthday lottery, have succeeded. Succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. That's not really the question. The question is, will you choose to matter? Will you choose to do something, small or large, today and tomorrow and the next day, that offers people something they cannot find all by themselves? It offers them something they deserve. What it offers them is dignity. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and 
we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.